Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, through to chapter 2, ending at verse 5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear, and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Hi everyone, it's good to be with you again. And uh, let me add my welcome to Clayton's, and let me also add an announcement uh, you may have seen an email come out from the church in the last few days asking you to indicate what your preferences and feelings are about returning to church on October the 31st, two Sundays' time. And we've sent that out just so that we can get a bit of a gauge uh, to know how many people we ought to expect in the building and we can plan accordingly for that. Uh, if you can go ahead and fill that out for us in the next 48 hours or so, uh, one per household, so we can get a clear indication. That would really help us with our planning. Uh, but we really hope that you'll be able to join us for one of those two services in two Sundays' time. Let me pray for us now as we have a think about this passage together. Let's pray. Uh, wise God, you are the one who created this world with wisdom. And we know that we have turned from your paths. We know that we have rejected what you say is right and true and good, and we have made those decisions for ourselves. And so, God, as we come to your word today, we know that we are coming with all sorts of blind spots and all sorts of prejudgments about these things, all sorts of attitudes that will need to be corrected by you. And so we pray that you would humble us and give us grace as we read and think today. Help us as we look at this passage in particular uh, to receive what you're saying and to think about where our trust and our hope and our boasting is in this life. Please humble us, equip us for this, and transform us through it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, nobody likes 
to look foolish, do they? I think we can all agree on that. It's pretty universal uh, distaste for looking like the fool. And generally, it's something that we all try and avoid if we can, if it's at all within our control. As you think about perhaps, uh, what are the moments in your life where you have looked most foolish? Can you think of that? Where you, you were just most embarrassed? As I think about moments like that in my life, generally, I think back to my high school years. Seem to be a a great cluster of those sort of moments happening in those years. There's really no other time in your life, I think, than when you're a teenager where you care so much about what other people think of you. And so you're primed, if you like, to to feel like those moments of foolishness are accentuated. Uh, I can remember in high school at least a couple of times being there in class and uh, not really thinking and putting my hand up to ask the teacher a question and accidentally calling a female teacher mum. You ever have that kind of moment happen? Tell you what, in an all-boys high school, that moment was absolute death. Uh, There was nothing worse that that you could do in high school than call your teacher mum. You never lived it down, at least I didn't. Uh, It's in a moment like that, I find, that uh, you just kind of wish the earth would open up beneath you and swallow you in. It's so embarrassing. It's so awful when you care so deeply about the opinions of others and then you, you stuff it all up, you're laughed at, you're pointed at, you're excluded on the basis of it. Have you ever had that kind of a moment, those kind of moments that you just keep replaying in your head and reliving and refeeling over and over and over again, even years after they've happened? You know, we, we want people to think well of us, don't we? Uh, we don't want others to think that we're fools. And so, generally speaking, we try to impress others. I think that's just... That's human nature. You put your best foot forward. You, you present yourself in the best light, right? Uh, you emphasize your successes and you downplay your failures. You flaunt your strengths and you hide your weaknesses. Uh, because, let's be honest, deep down, we all do really want other people to think well of us, don't we? Well, in the church at Corinth that Paul was writing this letter to, they had a similar problem. They were preoccupied with this appearance of success and prestige. You see, Corinth was an affluent, cosmopolitan kind of a society. And in that society, it was all about kind of climbing the social ladder, you know, gathering a following, if you could, being someone of influence. That was the aim of the game, to be more respected and and more important than other people around you. And so, for instance, the larger your vocabulary was, the better. Uh, The wealthier you were, the better. Uh, The more accolades that you could rack up, the better. And the more important you could call your friends, the better. And at all costs in ancient Corinth, you did not admit weakness. You did not admit to looking foolish. Uh, You would always take the credit for yourselves. And as I describe that kind of picture of a society like that, I wonder if if you're starting to see how easy it is uh, for us today as Christians to fall into that trap that trap of kind of wanting to hide our weaknesses and emphasise our strengths, our successes. It is easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? Because it's the trap of pride. And that's a universal human problem. And Christians are not exempt from pride. Well, today's passage is something of a wake-up call for people who are struggling with pride. And in this passage, what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to give us a few hard truths that we've got to come to terms with, hard truths that are going to shatter our pride, shatter our desire for admiration. 
three hard truths we're going to see in this passage. Hard truth number one is that the gospel sounds foolish. The gospel sounds foolish. Uh, do you remember last week how we heard about how the church in Corinth, they, they were dividing up into all these little factions, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, all that kind of thing. Uh, well, Paul here in these verses, he comes along and he says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Uh, there are not lots of little groups, guys. No, you've misunderstood. Actually, fundamentally, there are really only two types of people in this world. And maybe you've heard that before. There's only two types of people in this world. Well, let me tell you, it's not uh, the type of people who like pineapple on their pizza and those who don't, for instance. It's not those who pronounce it GIF and those who pronounce it GIF. That's not the difference. It's not whether you're an iPhone or an Android person. That's not the divide. No, the two groups of people in this world are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Those are the only two categories that matter. And you see the fulcrum that divides people into either side, it's the cross of Christ. The good news about Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. That is what divides people. Have a read with me again of verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, what you think about the cross, it lands you in one of two groups. Either you think it's stupid and weak, and that means you are a person who is perishing. Or you think it's wise and powerful, and that means you are someone who is being saved. And, and Paul means to remind the Corinthian Christians here that actually, remember, you're in the minority. Uh, the majority of people are those ones on the planet who think that the cross is utter foolishness, who think that what the Christians believe makes no sense whatsoever. That's the majority view here, Corinth. Keep that in mind. Uh, there's some pretty famous uh, ancient graffiti that you can find in a, a museum in Rome now. It was taken from the Roman catacombs in the second century. It's a scratching that somebody did uh, of a man uh, worshipping somebody who's nailed to a cross. Only the person nailed to a cross, I'll put the, the image up here, you can see that the person nailed to the cross is got a donkey's head on them. It's depicting Jesus saying, how absurd it is, and the caption scratched underneath there in Greek is Alexomenos worships his God. You see, even in the ancient world, they believed that worshipping Jesus was a joke, nothing to take seriously, utter foolishness, a donkey on a cross. You see, Paul elaborates how foolish the world thinks our message is in verse 22. He says that Jews demand signs, that is, they're, they're looking for miracles, they're looking for displays of power. That's what will impress them. But then here comes the Christian message, the message of the cross, which said that Jesus has died in humiliation, <laughs> executed as a criminal. Well, that doesn't impress. And the Greeks, well, they don't think much of it either because they're looking for wisdom, you see. The, the Greeks love their complex moral philosophy. And here comes the Christian message, the message of the cross that is so simple that even a child can understand it. It is a simple message, isn't it? You sin, he dies, and you live. That's the gospel. See, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. And let me say, on some point or, another, or other, 
Uh, the gospel will be unacceptable to every culture across time. There's not a culture in the world where the gospel doesn't sound unbelievable, where it doesn't grate with their expectations and values in some way. That's the reality back as Paul was writing here to Corinth, and it's the same for us today. You know, today in our culture, if you tell someone, I'm a Christian, you know what they hear? They hear you saying, I'm a gullible idiot. That's the translation. I'm a Christian? No, no, I'm a gullible idiot. I mean, sometimes I think that we fail to appreciate just how unbelievable it sounds to other people when we explain what we believe because we've become so familiar with it. I mean, you're really saying that that pathetic, beaten-up failure on the cross, that's your God? Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. And that moment, you're saying that that moment when they killed him, that's the rescue? Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's what we're saying. Hang on, let me get this straight. You're saying that the only way to live forever is to take a man that lived 2,000 years ago and to torture him and execute him. Is that right? Yeah, 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 spot on. That's, that's the Christian message. And you're saying that he will take the blame for what I did, that God will accept his death 2,000 years ago instead of all of our deaths, even though I've never met him and even though there's only one of him. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's, that's exactly what we're saying. That's correct. It sounds, friends, like utter foolishness. And if you are in any doubt as to whether the world thinks that we are fools, let me put you out of those doubts and suggest that you go onto the website of whatever newspaper you like to read and check out the comments section on any article that mentions Christianity or the church. You will get a, an unfiltered perspective really quickly about what the world thinks about what we believe. It's hard truth number one. The gospel message sounds foolish. Here's hard truth number two. Those who believe the gospel look foolish. Those who believe the gospel look foolish. Now, look, um, I'm sorry if you're tuning into church today looking for a bit of a pick-me-up, a bit of an ego boost, because you're not going to find it in this passage, I'm afraid to tell you. Let me read for you verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Paul is telling the Corinthians to take an honest look in the mirror, look at themselves, and just think and remember who you were when you became a Christian. He's trying to get them and us, if you like, back down to earth with a bit of honest self-assessment. He's saying, how impressive were you really before you came to Christ? You know, were there many of you from that top rung of society, many one percenters amongst you at all? You know, any of you, any at all in, in, amongst the most powerful in society, you know, in, the, in our church, we've got any federal politicians amongst us? Um, no, state politicians maybe? No, I don't think so. Local politicians even. Not that I can think of. How about any world record holders? Any of them amongst your number? Any Olympians? Uh, any, anyone with a major scientific discovery under their belt? Is there anyone of note amongst us at all? Here's the truth, friends, for, for Corinth and for us. For the most part, we are all thoroughly average people. We are totally unimpressive. You know the bell curve? <laughs> we are smack bang in the middle of it. Now, look, it's, it's not that he's saying that there are no famous or smart or accomplished Christians. He just says that that's not many of you. Not many of you were like that. That's his point. By human standards, they were, verse 27, foolish, weak, 
and lowly. That's who believes the gospel, the foolish, the weak, and the lowly. I wonder, have you ever noticed that the gospel tends to flourish in those parts of the world with weak and poor and disease-stricken people? You ever picked up on that? And it's so often despised in those parts of the world that are most sophisticated and intellectual and prosperous, like Australia. Paul here is drawing attention to the fact that most Christians really have nothing much to boast about. And and (laughs) that's a bit disappointing, isn't it? That's a hard truth to come to terms with. I I suspect that that is why we are so quick to, to latch on to any celebrity who even hints that they may have become a Christian. You know, whenever someone in our world who is adored becomes a Christian, don't you do just like that little internal fist pump? Yes, on our team now. Look, they're a Christian. See, we can be impressive too. Look at them. Or or maybe when there's someone in the church uh, who has a really impressive, high, powerful job, or or someone who has a significant uh, accomplishment. Don't we tell people about that? We boast about them. Hey, did you know that there's someone in my church who's the CEO of that company over there? Oh, and did you know the head doctor from over there? They're a Christian too. You know, we're not all stupid, you know. We, We put people like that up on a podium. Like their faith is somehow kind of like a product endorsement for us or something. What we don't tend to do is to highlight, you know, the the weakest, the most embarrassing, awkward, stupidest person that we can find in church and parade them in front of our friends. We don't do that. But God does. Weak, unimpressive, ordinary Christians, they're the ones that God loves for the world to see. Hard truth number one, the gospel message sounds foolish. Hard truth number two, those who believe the gospel look foolish. Now, before we move on, let me just offer a quick word of application here. I want to say this as plainly as I possibly can. Christianity has never been cool, and it never will be. And if you follow Christ, you will never be cool in the eyes of the world. If you're a Christian, you need to make peace with that fact. That you cannot follow Jesus and need to be liked by the world. Because if you are trying to have it both ways, the approval of God and the approval of the world, what's going to happen is you'll end up with neither. If you're someone who lives and dies based on how other people think about you, then you will, I promise you, over time, start to be ashamed of the gospel. And the Bible says to us numerous times, for this exact reason, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Friends, we have to resist the urge to try and and shave bits off the Christian message so that it becomes a little bit more palatable to the world. That pressure is real in our day and age, and I suspect it's only going to get up as our culture becomes more hostile to Christianity. We must resist that pressure, but we've also got to resist the urge on the other end of the spectrum to just stay silent out of fear. You know when you have those moments in in a relationship, in in a conversation with somebody, and you think, you know, I... There's an opening here. I could speak about Jesus right now, but I know that if I do, I'm going to sound crazy. You know those moments. I know those moments. And we're not wrong for assessing it that way because that's exactly what will happen. We will sound foolish, crazy, unhinged when we explain what we believe to people. 
But friends, I want to remind you what Jesus warned his followers in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So friends, don't hold your breath waiting for the message of the cross to become socially acceptable because it won't happen. It is and it will always be foolish to our world. There's no escaping that. And so what should you do knowing that fact? I think you should speak up. I think you should say to yourself, you know what, there's never going to be a moment in any of my relationships where I'm going to think, boy, now's the perfect time to share Jesus with this person and it's just going to go down a treat. Now, the gospel will always grate against the values of our society. It will always grate. It will always cause offence. It will always look foolish for believing it. And so what are we to do? We ought to speak up anyway. Uh, we've heard today that we're starting Christianity explored again this term. I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to put this into practice, to take bold risks speaking about Jesus, knowing that we are going to look foolish, but doing it anyway. Hard truth number one, the gospel's message sounds foolish. Hard truth number two, those who believe the gospel look foolish. Hard truth number three, this was all God's deliberate choice. You know, it was a considered decision by God to operate in this way, to have his message seem foolish and to have those who believe it seem foolish. God chose this, friends. That's the third hard truth Paul confronts us with today. You see there in verse 19, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, explaining why the message of the cross is foolishness. He says, for it is written. That is, Paul is saying, this didn't happen by accident. God decided a long, long time ago that he was going to do this. You see the same kind of sentiment there in verses 27 and 28, uh, repeating that language that God chose foolish people. He chose those who look unimpressive. It wasn't an accident that these are the people who ended up trusting the gospel. In other words, what, what Paul is saying here is that God could have, if he wanted to, have made his way of saving people look very impressive and very wise in the world's eyes. He could have done it in a way that conformed to the world's expectations, the world's assessments, their values. I don't know exactly what that would have looked like. Maybe a legion of angels, you know, conquering and swooping down from heaven to save only the best and brightest that the world has got to offer. Maybe that would have made sense in the world's eyes or something. But he didn't do it that way. He did it this way, in this seemingly foolish way, saving unimpressive people deliberately. Why? Why did God do that? He did it to shame the wise and to humble the proud. Let's have a look again at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. You see, it's God's intention that his message is not only accessible to the intellectual elite, you know, to those who fancy themselves as the best of the best. Look from verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's saying, what have the greatest minds of this world 
got to say to us about how to solve the problem of perishing under the judgment of God? Come on, speak up, philosophers of this age. Speak up, gurus. What have you got to say? Nothing. No answers from this world how to solve that problem. For all their wisdom, you know, the the wisdom of this world, it can put a man on the moon, but it can't put a man in the new creation. Uh, The wisdom of this world, it can transplant a human heart, but it can't transform a human heart. You see, God chose this seemingly foolish, weak, unimpressive way to save people in order to silence the boastful arrogance of humanity, to show us that no matter how significant we make ourselves, we're nothing without God and his intervention. And I want to be clear that I've been saying now that the message of the cross appears foolish, but I want to be clear that the message of the cross is not foolish. The message of the cross is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Look again at, at verse eight. For the sorry, verse eighteen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or how about from verse twenty-three and twenty-four? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both. Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Or one more, how about verse 30? It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. You see, the cross looks stupid to this world, but it's actually incredibly powerful because it saves people who are perishing. You've just got to humble yourself. That's the key. I mean, picture for yourself the stereotypical Corinthian or the stereotypical successful person in our day and age even, a banker, a lawyer, a doctor or someone, someone well-dressed, well-groomed. You know, imagine taking such a person you know, out of the city and down to the garbage dump and standing with them there in front of a post with a naked man hanging by the nails driven through his wrists, covered with blood, gasping for his last breaths. And imagine telling him, sir, this is wisdom and righteousness and holiness and redemption. Will you kneel here and cast yourself on him for mercy? Can you imagine that? Can you, can you see that no proud, self-reliant, self-important person could possibly kneel there, right? That? You want me to bow down before that? You think that I need that? Don't you see how I'm dressed? Have you seen the car that I drive? Don't you know where I work? Don't you know how much money I make? You think that I need that heap of bloody flesh? What do you think I am? It's either you humble yourself, kneel, and are saved, or you stand upright in your pride and you perish. There's this really uh, amazing story uh, about one of the members of the British nobility from the 18th century, uh, who was a woman with the title of Lady Huntington. And uh, she was converted and saved under the ministry of George Whitfield. And uh, she would often invite other members of the nobility to come and hear Whitfield preaching. And one such person that she invited uh, was this pompous friend of hers called uh, the Countess of Buckingham. 
And uh, the Countess of Buckingham refused. She, she wrote a letter declining the invitation, but we've actually still got some of the letter. Uh, it hasn't been lost to history. And so I want to read you her response to the invitation to come and hear Whitfield preaching. She, the Countess of Buckingham said this, I thank your ladyship for the information concerning the Methodist preachers. The doctrines of these preachers are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect towards their superiors in perpetually endeavouring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl upon the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. The seemingly foolish gospel divides people into two groups, the proud who will perish and the humble who will be saved. And here is Paul's point. If you're a Christian and you believe these hard truths that he's been laying out here, then what possible justification could you have for being proud? How could you possibly engage in that practice of constantly trying to impress other people with your accomplishments? Why, Christian, would you care about what other people think of you? Why would you play society's game of trying to become the most important, influential person that you can, just chasing that mirage, which is the approval of the world? If you're a Christian, then you have been set free from that treadmill. Let me read you verse 31. Paul writes, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, friends, the truth of the gospel, it ought to remove our desperate need to be liked and to be respected by everyone else. It ought to be the nail in the coffin to our performance anxiety, our fear of looking foolish. You know, as a Christian, our failures and our shortcomings and our weaknesses, they don't define us anymore. They've been paid for at the cross. The message of the cross, you see, it tells us that we don't deserve glory and honour. We deserve death. And yet, God has graciously given to us his love and his unconditional approval. So what possible need have we got now to boast in our own accomplishments? Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, those famous verses, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. As Christians, we boast only in the cross. We are not concerned whether other people love us or hate us. And so we are not interested in trying to make ourselves look good. That's the point that Paul makes at the start of chapter 2 here, that, that he made a conscious decision when he came to Corinth to not be impressive. Have a look here, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And so it was with me. Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul certainly had the ability to sound impressive. He had been schooled and trained as a Pharisee. He knew the scriptures back to front. He clearly got away with words. He's got impressiveness at his disposal. And yet in Corinth, 
he decides not to use it. Why? Because his goal is not to draw attention to himself and to make others think well of him, but it's to draw attention to Christ and to make others think well of him. And Christian, that is your privilege too. You don't need to be thought well of. You don't need to appear superior to anyone else. You don't need to impress anyone because you've already got the approval of God. And besides, this world is always going to think that we are fools. That was God's wise design. So let me finish by by paraphrasing what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 6. Friends, may we never boast about anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have, in your perfect wisdom, sent your Son to take our punishment, the death that we deserved, for thinking so highly of ourselves and so little of you. Please forgive us through the death of your Son for such foolishness. And forgive us too for continuing to chase after the approval of others when you have lavished us with your love and grace and approval. Help us to live in that freedom of knowing that we have nothing to boast about except the cross of Christ. And may we do so this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.